This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, thank you. No, I really do appreciate that. Um, and again, um, my father was born where again? Berlin. Berlin. Yeah. Oh my goodness. If you, I, all right. Good. Good. Okay. As Rabbi Rutenberg mentioned, I have dealt with hundreds and hundreds of couples. And and before we start the marriage piece. I love dealing with singles because I share with them two important questions. Ask a couple that are married two years the following question. Whether you're happily married or not happily married, the person that you're now married to, is that the same person that you were dating? I have asked this question to hundreds of couples. The same person, no connection whatsoever. The person I was dating was no connection whatsoever to the person I'm married to. That's question number one. Question number two is, when everyone's going out, they have a list of things. Some things are important, some things are, they're willing to give in on, but there are certain deal breakers. Ask a couple two years after they're married, the really big deal, deal breakers, the things that you wouldn't budge on, do they matter? Not at all. But there are six other things that I never even dreamt of and that are much more important. Now that's important for us people who are still single, but it's important for us who are married as well. And what I'd like to do now is discuss some of the 10 really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make, and hopefully we'll get an aspect and understanding of marriage that will hopefully shed some light on A, those issues, and marriage in general. Let's begin. Parshas Veira begins with Avram Avinu lifting his eyes, and on the horizon he sees three wayfarers. To his knowledge, they're just Arabs who are walking the desert. He runs out to greet them, bows down, folds face in the sand. Al Please do not pass from your servant. He ushers them in, he prepares an elaborate meal, and he stands over them like a waiter. At a certain point, one of the malachim says to Avram, Where is Sarah, your wife? And Avram answers, She is in the tent. Rashi says, These were the highest level of Malachim. They knew exactly where Sarimena was. Why then did they ask this question? To make her more beloved in his eyes. She was, he was going to answer, she's in the tent, she's modest, she's not out there in the public eye, she's a modest woman. By saying those words, it would further increase his appreciation. They asked that question to make Sarah more beloved in Avram's eyes. Now, if you think about this Rashi, it should be a little peculiar. The Malachim are asking a question that sounds rather rude. The man offers you food, he offers you drink, welcomes you in, and you start asking about his wife. That doesn't sound appropriate. And why did they do it? To make him love her a little bit more. Here's the point. If I were to ask anyone, what is the greatest obstacle to a successful marriage? What's the single biggest obstacle to a successful marriage? Anyone? I'll share with you before I let the cat out of the bag. I'll share with you the most common. The biggest obstacle to a successful marriage is when the world begins and ends in my Dalit Amas. When I'm the center of the universe, I'm a difficult person to be married to. Here's the problem. We're dealing with the two most other-centered people you could imagine. Avram Avinu, the paradigm of chesed. Sari Menu, his equal. Two perfect tzaddikim. The morale says in the course of history, there never was a bond, there never was a connection between husband and wife as there was between Avram and Sarah. See, here's the question. 
Why did the Malachim feel they had to overstep their bounds? That's a question that maybe not even sneers, to make her more beloved in his eyes. They had the near-perfect marriage. Why did the Malachim feel they had to add to it? But if that question doesn't trouble you, let's extend the question a little bit more. The next point of the story is, one of the Malachim says, next year, this time, your wife will have a child. Sarah, who's on the other side of the tent, overhears. Vatischak Sarah Bekirba. Sarah laughs inside, saying, How could it be? Vadoni Zokain. My husband is too old. Hashem complains to Avram. Why did Sarah laugh saying that she's too old? Now, if you pay attention to the storyline, that's not what Sarah Menu said. Sarah said, How could I have a child when my husband is too old? And when Hashem repeats the story, Hashem says, Why did Sarah say that she is too old? Hashem changed. And Rashi points out, Shina Kasab Mibnea Shalom. The Allah is you're allowed to lie for Shalom bias. Hashem changed the truth. Hashem lied Kavyachal because of Shalom bias. And I heard my Rebbe, the Rashiva Zatzal, ask a very penetrating question on this. When you say you're allowed to lie for Shalom Bayes, that means if a couple is going to have a fight, going to have a major, some big, big deal issue, I get it. But let's assume for a minute that Avram Avinu heard that Sarah said that he was too old. Do you think he would have gone to pieces? Sarah called me an old man. He didn't grow up in a juvenile-centered culture. Every year of his life was brilliantly spent. He was a tremendous person. By the way, he had another 75 years to go. And had he heard the words that Sarah said he's too old, I don't think it would have gone to pieces. Why then did Hashem have to change, had to lie, excuse my expression? Number one, why did the Malachim feel they wanted to make him more beloved? Question number one. Question number two is, why did Hashem change? Why did Hashem change the, the story? So, to understand the answer to this, let's focus on a very interesting observation. I have a piece of advice for you. If you have a successful business... Hire talent. If you need help in marketing, if you need help in sales, if you need help in accounting, bring in talent, hire talent. But whatever you do, do not bring in a partner. Why? Because almost every partnership ends. It might be five years, it might be ten years. But almost every partnership ends, and typically it ends badly. The only thing worse than bringing in a partner is bringing in a family member as a partner. Because then when the partnership ends, it's very, very sticky. So here's the observation. When you take two people from the same gender and you ask them to share their nine to five, the odds of that union lasting more than 10 years are very slim. When you ask a couple to get married, it's not their nine to five. Their entire life, everything they do, they do together. From the time they get up in the morning to the time they go up to sleep at night, how they bring up the kids, where they vacation, if they vacation, where they spend their money, if they spend their money. Everything that they're going to do, they're going to do together. And here's the point. If you think about it, the odds of a marriage succeeding really isn't that great. Every human being is different. Every human being has different likes and different dislikes. And to take two human beings and ask them to mold their lives together, they meet and then now live your life together in peace and harmony, should never work. But if this doesn't trouble you yet, let me make the question a little bit more obvious. Ladies and gentlemen, men and women are different. Now, I know that may not be socially uh, acceptable today, but it is rather obvious that men and women are different. But not slightly different, not topically different, not lightly different, different in every imaginable way. Different in the way they think, different in the way they talk, different in what's important to them, different in the way, when they communicate, if they communicate. Would you like to know what I'm talking about? Daniel Goleman, in his book, Emotional Intelligence, writes about a study. They took public school kids 
and they asked them the following question. At age three, they took a group of public school children and they asked the boys the following question, please name your best friend. And he writes that about 50% of the boys named a girl as his best friend. They asked the girls, and also about 50% of the girls named a boy as her best friend. Same group of children at the age of five, they asked the boys, only 20% of the boys named a girl as his best friend, and only about 20% of the girls named a boy as her best friend. Same, me, same group of children when they were seven years old, not a single boy, zero, not a single boy mentioned a girl as his best friend, not a single girl mentioned a boy as her best friend. Now why is that? Because when children are little, when they're two, three years old, old in the juvenile stage, they play together nicely, they have the same interests, and they play together very, very well. But as they get older, their interests divide. And the boys start playing rough and tumble games with boy toys, girls start playing dolls and house and etc. By the time the children are seven years of age, they're in different worlds. And if you're not sure I'm right, I'll give you a sociological study. Go to a public school yard during recess. The classes are mixed. Find the boys and the girls during recess. You'll find the boys off on one side playing their type of games, the girls on the other side, and rare it is that they mix. But why? Because boys and girls are vastly different at the age of 7, at the age of 9, and truly at the age of 11. Now here's the point. As those children grow older, the differences don't become less. The interests become far more divided and what they're focused on becomes far more diverse. And by the time they're 18, by the time they're 20, they're in different worlds. So here's the point. You take a young man who's brought up, brought up in his home, with his way of doing things, with his approach to life. Take a young woman who's brought up in her home, with a totally different way of doing things, totally different approach, totally different way of thinking. And assuming that they're of opposite gender, completely, totally diverse. You put them together and break a glass, say Mazel Tov, and expect them to live in peace and harmony forever. Not a single marriage should succeed. Every marriage should end very badly, very quickly. Now, clearly that's not what Hashem wants. And to allow marriages to succeed, Hashem created what I call tools that bond. Various tools that create a connection, that create a bond. The first one is something called infatuation. Infatuation is when the chassan comes back from the kala and he's got that glassy-eyed look. Ooh! And the kala is like spaced out somewhere. Now, it's interesting to note because neuroscientists study the brain chemistry. The, you know, the typical the serotonin, dopamine, adrenaline. They say a couple when they're infatuated, and that infatuation has the same effect as, on the neurotransmitters as does cocaine use. The couple are high. Now, I'd like to share with you one of the interesting manifestations of that high. You ever notice that the chassan says, she's perfect, she's incredible. Now, she's a fun girl, I know her, but she's not perfect. By the way, folks, I'm married. Baruch Hashem, 35 years, very, I think very successfully. My wife loves me. She's not here to say otherwise. I love her. But here's the point. We were newly engaged, and I heard my wife on the phone, and this is what the phone call sounded like. You know, I, I know no one's perfect, but I'm telling you, I'm telling you, He's perfect. Now, I heard this conversation, and I wasn't going to be the one to be the bearer of bad tidings, but I knew she was in for a rude awakening. Why is it that the Kala says the Chassan's perfect? Because they're infatuated. And there's this, the dopamine, the serotonin, the adrenaline. They're high. The couple feel it's going to last forever. It's going to be there forever. And my friends, this is a very interesting phenomenon. 
because it's typically six months, maybe a year after the wedding, where either he or she or sometimes both say the following words, oh my goodness, oh my gosh, I made the biggest mistake in my life. I married the wrong one. And it's true that they made a mistake, but not marrying the wrong one. And they mistook infatuation for love. Infatuation is instant. Love takes work. Infatuation just happens. Love takes an awful lot of devotion. And when you mistake infatuation for love, that is the first of the ten really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make. You see, infatuation is a gift. Sometimes couples have it, but all it does is begin the process. It allows a couple to begin the process of molding their lives, but my friends, infatuation has a shelf life. It lasts six months, a year, but it's kind of like the sulfur on a kitchen match. You know, when you strike the match, the sulfur lights up, but then the wood has to catch. The infatuation allows you to begin. It's that glassy-eyed look, that happiness, but then the real bond of love, the real connection has to begin. And many, many couples make this mistake, and they say the words, Oh my goodness, I made the biggest mistake. They're making a mistake. They're mistaking infatuation for love. Infatuation just happens. It's instant. Love takes a lot of work. Infatuation just occurs. But love doesn't work that way. And it is essential for a successful marriage for a couple to be in love. As an aside, for those people who are still single, on a regular basis I get calls from young men and young women who say, he's a good guy, I I like him, but I'm not infatuated. How how could I how could I how could I move forward? I'm not. Inf- I ask you, do you enjoy this? Do you enjoy the date? Yeah. Do you look forward to the date? Do you feel you know him well? And does it seem to? Yep. Yeah. But I'm not infatuated. And I'll say to them, but you feel everything there except infatuation, right? My friends, let me explain to you something very very important. Love in a marriage is not infatuation that grows up. It's not like the couple were infatuated and that infatuation turns into love. Infatuation is a temporary state. He looked into her eyes and the violin started playing and whoosh, the neurotransmitters went off in his brain. But that's false. It's illusionary. Real love in a marriage requires a tremendous amount of work. And many, many young couples have difficulty taking that step because they say, you want me to be in a loveless marriage? And the answer is no. I want you to find the right one and then work on the marriage. And this is the first of the ten really dumb mistakes. Mistake number one is mistaking infatuation for love. Okay, but let's move on. Ladies and gentlemen, what is the biggest cause of divorce today? Biggest cause of divorce. Anyone? I'm sorry? Getting married. Yes, that's, that is accurate. Is your wife here? Yes. Really? You want to come to my house tonight? I have a nice couch. Okay. Okay, biggest cause of divorce today, anyone besides getting married? Money. Money, money, good. Money, um, how about children, religion, in-laws, right? I'd like to share with you that it's not correct. There's only one major cause for, of divorce today. And that is something called fighting. Oh yeah, come on Rabbi, it's fighting about the kids and the religion and the money, right? Uh Uh-uh. You see, it's never the issues, it's how the couple deals with the issues. It's never the children or the money or the in-laws, it's always how you deal with it. If there's a climate of friendship, a climate of love, my way, your way, we find a way. But you see, it's never the issues, it's always the relationship. And I'd like to show you how I know this to be true. Almost 70% of successful marriages have at least one irreconcilable difference. What's an irreconcilable difference? An irreconcilable difference is a difference that can't be reconciled. So for instance, he has a successful business in Manhattan. 
and she has severe allergies and needs to live in San Diego. Chicago doesn't cut it for either one. He wants to bring the kids up in a Hasidish way, and she wants to bring the kids up Litvish. You can't send the kids to yeshiva with long curly payas on one side. An irreconcilable difference is a difference that can't be reconciled. 70% of successful marriages have at least one irreconcilable difference. But they're successfully married. But do you understand why? Because it's never the issues, it's the relationship. It's the climate of their marriage. John Gottman is a marriage researcher. He can tell with 94% accuracy whether a couple are going to be divorced within five years. And explains his method. He brings his couple into the lab, and he asks them to discuss three topics. One topic is a neutral topic, one topic is mutually pleasing to both of them, and one is what he calls a flashpoint, something that they typically argue about. And he measures everything. He measures their respiration, their heart rate. He videotapes the conversation, and he reviews the videotape and explains he's looking for one thing, contempt. Contempt is not hatred, it's not anger, it's that rolling of the eyes, like, here we go again. He says if he sees one sign of contempt without five positive signs opposite it, that couple are heading for trouble. 94% accuracy, he can tell whether they're going to be divorced. You see, my friends, Hollywood got it 100% correct, but backwards. In the world of Hollywood, we fall in love, we get married. We fall out of love, we get unmarried. Love comes, love goes, it's a mystery. In a Torah world, we don't get married because of love. I marry this person because I believe this is the person that Hashem determined is the perfect fit for me. Love has nothing to do with that decision. But if you don't build a powerful bond of love, if you don't create a tremendous connection, and you don't maintain that bond of love in your marriage, you're going to find yourselves in very, very difficult straits. I think that's the answer to the Malachim. As great as the marriage that Avram and Sarah had, there could be more to it. You see, the glue of the marriage, the glue of the relationship is the love. The Malachim said, you gave us food to eat, we want to give you something back. They wanted to increase the love, and the marriage was a 99.9% perfection. There's more that could be added. They wanted to add to Avram's appreciation to who Sarimena was. And I heard my Rebbe, the Rishiv explain Rashi that way as well. And why did Hashem change? If Avram had heard that Sarah said that he's too old, he would not have gone to pieces, he would have said, hey, Sarah called me an old man. It would have made it maybe an, a scratch, not even a scratch, but somehow and somewhere it would have made a slight, slight, slight scratch. And Hashem said, it's worthy for me to change the truth. It's worthy for me to lie, excuse my expression, because that's how important Shalom Bias is. And my friends, there are two lessons to learn from here. Number one, Shalom Bayes is Kaddush, is holy. And it's worth Hashem changing the truth. And number two, love is the glue in the marriage. If there's a bond of love, if there's a connection, your marriage will succeed. If the climate of the marriage is not one of love, not one of friendship, not one of respect, in a very short time, it's going to be very ugly. Okay, now... I get the phone call. I get these too often, but it sounds something like this. Rabbi Schaefer, thank you for taking the call. I need to talk to you about my marriage. Okay, what is it? Um, first of all, how long are you married? Ten years. How many children? Five children. What's the problem? The problem is my husband. Okay, what's the problem? Well, he's a good guy. He has a good job, <clears throat> responsible, takes care of the family, takes care of the kids. He learns, he dominates. I say, so far, sounds pretty good. Well, what's the problem? The problem is, the problem is, the 
problem is, I don't love him. I don't love him. So what do you do? What do you do when you get the phone call, the woman's married 10 years, 5 kids, and she doesn't love her husband? So I'll share with you what I do. I ask the following question. I say, Madam, tell me this. Last month, how many times did you and your husband go out? But going out doesn't mean like to a bar mitzvah or to a wedding. How many times did you and your husband go out to bond, to connect, to spend time together as a couple? And the answer is, we didn't. Okay. The month before that, how many times did you go out? The answer is, we didn't. The month before that, the month before that, by about eight or nine, I stop and I say, Madam, don't you understand? You guys are like two ships in the night. If you're not going to spend time together, if you're not going to bond, if you're not going to connect, you're going to find yourselves in very, very different parts of the universe. And this is the second of the ten really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make. They stop working on the marriage. They stop working on the love. They stop working on the connection. When they were young and engaged, and maybe the first six months of marriage, they were infatuated, they spent time together, but along comes a kid or two, and then some responsibilities, and before you know it, they become busy with life, they stop working on the bond, they stop working on the connection, and they find themselves in very, very difficult straits. My friends, the single most important ingredient to a successful marriage is the bond of love, the connection. And now I'm going to say that radical statement... And I know I'm going to get the pushback. And I'm not scared because I've gotten it before, but I'm going to get it again, and I'm going to say it. Are you ready? Ladies, you ready? Gentlemen, you ready? A couple should be having an ongoing love affair with their spouse. That's not a chiddish. That's obvious. To maintain that, you have to do many things. You have to send love notes and gifts and cards and all the things that a couple in love should do. That's also not a chiddish. That's obvious. The chiddish is you have to spend time together. And that means you have to go out. That means at least once a week you go out as a couple. You get a babysitter and you go out. You leave the kids. You leave the family. And you go out to do one thing. To spend time together as a couple. Because if you don't do that, you're going to find yourselves very, very distant. And I cannot tell you how many times I've dealt with couples that have nothing wrong. They're both so aligned. They have the same ashkafas, same outlook. They want to bring up the kids in the same way. But they're so distant and they're so disconnected because of one reason. They're not spending time together. They're not bonding. They're not being a couple in love. And you have to go out once a week. You have to leave the kids. And I get the pushback. Go ahead. Give me the pushback. Rabbi, you're crazy. Once a week, who can afford it? And my husband started a new job. He's way too busy. Right? Right? It's not going to happen. Right? Right? Go, 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 yeah, of course, right, right? Okay, so let's do the math. It is very expensive to go out. Do you know how much it costs for a divorce lawyer and alimony? It's very, very time-consuming. Do you know what time management skills you need when you're running two households and you're running one and your ex-wife is running the other one? It is far cheaper, far more enjoyable, and a whole lot less painless to invest in your marriage and make sure you have a connection, you have a bond. But the only way to do it is you have to spend time. You have to really do it. But make no mistake, it's not just the going out. It's everything that a couple in love should be doing. That means spending time, being together, (coughs) sending the notes, the gifts, and everything that a couple in love should be doing. And ladies and gentlemen, I cannot tell you this enough. You must steal back your marriage. I don't have to tell you that children are the greatest bracha. But I also maybe should mention that the single greatest competitor 
for a successful marriage are children. Children need time. Children need resources. Children need your attention. And the greatest competitor for romance are children. And if you're not going to set boundaries, if you're not going to set time when you and your spouse are together without the children, if you're not going to set clear boundaries in a very short time, you're not going to have a marriage. You have to go out and to spend time together. And ladies, this one is sent to your way. When you feel guilty. But how could I leave my children with a babysitter? They resent it and they get upset. The single best investment you can make in your children being wholesome is a good marriage. Especially when your children are little, you and your husband are 10 feet tall. You're the center of gravity. If the union of mommy and daddy starts to fray, then gravity itself becomes questionable. Who knows what's going to be? Just look at children from a home in which there's either divorce or extreme fighting, and the damage is very, very obvious. The single best investment you can make in your children being happy, wholesome people is a successful marriage. But that means you have to invest time. You have to go out. But I'll tell you something. If your children resent it because you go out Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, it's time to do a very careful analysis. If you're going out Sunday night, Monday night, Tuesday night to different responsibilities, listen, I had this wedding and this bar mitzvah and this community, stop doing them. I guarantee the wedding will go on. If there are 400 people at the wedding and you don't show up, I've done, I've done this myself, I made this discovery. I've not gone to wedding and I find they still the next day, I see the pictures of the Chassan and Kala. They got married even without me. Oh my, without me. Without me, I was the 401st person, I wasn't there, and they still got married. Incredible. The kid got bar mitzvah without me. It's unbelievable. So if you're finding that you're out of the home too often, you must cut back on whatever it may be, community responsibilities, going to different simchas, but you cannot cut back on date night. You have to invest in your marriage, you have to spend time together, and there's nothing short of that that's going to work. Okay, let's move on. It's usually about two years after the wedding when it's, again, either he or she say the following to themselves. You know, I did okay. Baruch Hashem, I married well. But to be honest with you, I, I could have done better. I could have married someone smarter or taller or richer or funnier or neater, whatever it may be. And I realized I, I settled. I, I could have done better. Okay, what do you do when you find yourself thinking those thoughts? So I'd like to give you a very simple muscle. Ladies, I think you'll appreciate this one a little bit more than the gentleman, but gentlemen, listen along anyway. Here's the story. Your sister just got engaged, and the wedding is planned shortly thereafter. It's going to be the event of the season. Everyone and everyone is going to be there. So right away, you go shopping, and you find the perfect dress. It's beautiful. It's on sale, and it's neat. It's great. Ah, everything's perfect. Now, the only problem is with the perfect dress, of course, you need the perfect pair of shoes. You shop and you shop, can't find them. You shop and you shop, can't find it. TJ Maxx, Marshalls, Macy, can't find it. Try as much as you will, you can't find it. It's now a week before the wedding, you're panicking. It's a week, oh my God, what do you do? You stop into Macy's, and there in the clearance section, you see a pair of shoes on sale. Oh my goodness, half price. And they're gorgeous, the leather, the workmanship, they're so fresh. Oh my goodness. Only one problem. They're two sizes too small. But I can't leave them. Come on. You take them home and wear them to the wedding. And after two hours of dancing, you take your shoes off and you make the discovery that your feet are killing you. Because the leather can be fine. The workmanship can be perfect. The shoe can be fashionable. But if it doesn't fit, it's going to hurt. 
Could you have married somebody taller or, or smarter or more talented or neater? Yes. Could you marry someone richer? Absolutely. Hashem does not take away Bechira. Hashem does not take away free will from a person. But here's the question. Could you have found a better match? Could you have found a person who meets your strengths and matches your weaknesses better than your match? I kind of doubt it. Would you like to know why? Here's another question I like to ask single people, especially as they're getting closer to getting um, engaged. Um, how do I know that's the right one? I mean, I mean, you know, it checks out. He's good. He's, but how do I know? So here's a question. <clears throat> young, young lady, let's imagine you're 24 years of age and you're now going to get engaged. How long do you intend to be married for? Mitzvah for 50 or 60 years, right? Okay. And do you know what you're going to be like when you're 34? Do you know what you're going to be like when you're 44? How about when you're 54? Do you know what interests you're going to have? Do you know what things you're going to enjoy? Do you know what things you're going to try to not do? And if you do know that, do you know what your husband is going to be like 20 years from now, 30 years from now? When you go to that chuppah, there's one clear understanding. I am incapable of deciding the perfect match for me. Because I'm not marrying this person for 10 years or 20 years. It's a lifetime. And how could I possibly know? And then you recognize that there are certain decisions and certain jobs that are better left up to God. Forty days before you were put into this world, Hashem said, Bito Shaploni, daughter of so-and-so to so-and-so. Could you have done better? Absolutely. But not a better match. You could have married someone richer or smarter or taller or fancier, whatever it may be, but you would not have been happier. And this is the single cognition a person has to have. There are three pillars to a successful marriage. There's commitment, there's love, and there's learning to live together. Commitment comes from the understanding that Hashem chose the perfect person for me. It's so unusual how we met. Ask any couple to tell you their story. And everyone has a story. Understanding that if Hashem wanted this person for me, that gives me the commitment to work on the marriage. On a day-to-day basis, the glue of the marriage is the love. That's a relationship that's a going out and all the kind words and everything you need to do. In the book, I go through many of the tools of bond. You have to use all of them. But the third part is something that's often very, very difficult. There are many, many couples who are deeply in love and they're extremely committed, but they just can't seem to live together. And it's this third part that creates so much trouble, learning to live together. So, in this end, let me share with you a very, very important observation. Let's deal with another phone call that I get. The phone call sounds something like this. Rabbi Shaver, thank you for taking the call. I have a problem with my husband. What's the problem? He's 40 years old. And he leaves his socks on the floor. I yelled at him. I screamed at him 10,000 times. I said, pick your socks up. Maisha, you're 40 years old. Why did you pick up your socks? Okay, so what do you do? Should the guy pick up his socks? He's 40 years old. Okay, guys, stop looking down at your feet. Stop that. Okay, let me tell you what I said to her. I said, it's very interesting you say that to me. I was just speaking recently at a Shalom Bayez Shabbaton, and a gentleman came over to me and said, Rabbi, you got to help me. I'm a doctor, and I work in the ER, and there are many young nurses in there, thin, they're slim, my wife, listen, you know, she had her first baby, she put on some weight, she never lost that weight, she had her second child, put on some more weight, and then had our third child, she's now 40 pounds overweight, and she won't do it, I offered her a nutritionist, and I offered her an exercise plan, and she just won't do it, Rabbi, help me, how could I get my wife to lose the weight? 
Okay. I said to him, young man, you have a choice to make. You either embrace your wife as she is, or you suffer. I said, I want you to understand something. I've not yet met a woman who looks in the mirror and says, oh, 40 pounds heavier than I used to be. That's great. I love it. <laughs> so why doesn't she lose the weight? You offered a nutritionist. You offered an exercise program. Why doesn't she just go on the diet? And the answer is because change is not so simple and three kids might have a lot to do with it. But for whatever which reason, right now it's not going to happen. And you have a choice to make. You either embrace her as she is or you suffer. Because she's not going to change. And any attempt you make to change is just going to make her unhappy, you unhappy, and make life very, very difficult. Okay, now, I told this woman with the socks on the floor that you are 100% correct. Your husband's 40 years old. Pick up the socks, man. He should. But would you like to understand why he doesn't? Because he, like all of us, have many, many strengths, and we also have weaknesses. There are many people who are very talented in a lot of areas, but they have their own weaknesses. And guess what? He's very talented, very put together, but this is his weakness. If you screamed at him 10,000 times, guess what? You have a choice to make. You either embrace him as he is, or you suffer. Okay. I was speaking in Chicago. And um, actually, it was on Shalom Bias. I don't, the schmooze, as you know, if you go to schmooze.com, you'll see marriage is but a tiny little part. But anyway, lately I've been on this marriage kick. Anyway, I'm speaking in Chicago, and when I was finished, a woman raised her hand and said, Robbie Schaefer, do you remember you were here two years ago? I said, I do. She said, do you remember what you spoke about? I said, I don't. She said, well, you spoke about the socks on the floor. I said, okay. She said, that changed my marriage. I said, what do you mean? She said, well, my husband... He would come home Sunday night, take off his jacket, leave it on the dining room chair. Monday night, he'd take off that jacket, put that suit on the chair. Wearing a different suit Tuesday, he'd take that jacket off, leave it on a chair. Wednesday night, another jacket. By Shabbos, his entire wardrobe was in the dining room. I said, what used to happen? I used to scream, I used to yell. Now what happened? Well, you told this story about the socks on the floor. Now Sunday night, he puts a jacket on the chair. I take it upstairs. Monday night, he puts a jacket on the chair. I take it upstairs. Tuesday night, Wednesday night. I said to her, how's your shalom bias? She said, it's amazing. I asked the women in that room to stand up and clap. And they did. So, ladies and gentlemen, let me be very clear. It is not your job to change your spouse. We all do it. We all need to do it. We all have this emotional desire and need, this incredible pull to change our spouse. Gentlemen, don't change your spouse. Ladies, don't change your spouse. But you know why not? Because it never works. By the way, do you ever notice, and if you're really honest, you'll see I'm right. The thing that bothers you the most, the thing that you most want your spouse to change is going to be your strength and her weakness. It's invariably going to be, let's imagine I'm very on time and my spouse is late. That's pretty cute because it's the opposite in our family. But okay, let's imagine that's true. It's going to be her lateness that constant. I see how much more efficient she'd be. I see how much more she'd accomplish, how much more she'd get done. And invariably it's your strength and her weakness don't change your spouse and don't do it. All it does is it creates misery, it creates dissatisfaction, wrecks the relationship, and never works. Now, that being said, I have a very important observation to make. When I say that to men, usually I can accomplish something. I'll tell a guy, I'll ask him, did it ever work? Did it ever succeed? No. So can you now understand why you should stop doing it? Yes. And usually when I speak to men, I'm able to get them to stop. 
But ladies, with all due respect, I don't know why it is, but it seems to be an emotional possibility. No matter how many times I scream it, how many times I yell it, women seem to be incapable of not changing their husband. Let me explain to you what I mean. I was once giving a Shalom Bias lecture. And afterwards, we have the cards like here. And I asked people to write questions in. And someone went around and brought the questions forward for me to answer. So that was the day when I went on my routine about the socks on the floor. Don't change your spouse. Don't, okay, on and on and on. I thought I made my point very well. The first question that I get on the card says like this. Rabbi Schaefer, what if I try to change him by being very nice? No, don't do it. it it's not going to work, and it's going to wreck the relationship. Next question. Rabbi <clears throat> Schaefer, what if I do it with positive consequences? No, don't do it. It really don't do it. It's not going to work. Rabbi Schaefer, what if I... Third question. What if I do it with a sense of humor? No, no, no. Really, don't do it. It's not going to work. Fourth question was, <clears throat> what if I do it with negative consequences, like he won't get lunch if he doesn't... <laughs> you serious? Yes, it was serious. Four in a row. Four in a row. Now, I said this, I don't know how many times, don't change your spouse, don't do it, please don't do it. I thought I made my point very clearly. I thought I got my point across. It was in Brooklyn, I live in Muncie, so I had an hour and a half drive back, which was enough time for the emails to come in. I made the mistake of opening my email when I got home. The first email I see reads like this, from my Schaefer. If I'm not going to change him by being nice with a sense of humor or with the consequences, how am I going to change him? Okay, the next email. This is not a joke. I could show you the emails. The next email reads as follows. Rabbi Schaefer, after all the time you spent on this topic, maybe it's that, not that we don't understand what you're saying, but we don't agree. Exactly. You're going to change him if it kills you, him, and your marriage, which it will. So, ladies, gentlemen, let me make it as clear as I can make it. Please don't change your spouse. All it does is it wrecks the relationship. All it does is aggravate people. All it does is it takes a good relationship. And, and by the way, I have a little theory. You guys are a little young here, but I have a theory that there's a 20-year mark. Many, many marriages are like, eh, 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 eh. And after 20 years, suddenly it improves dramatically. Would you like to know why? My theory is like this. <clears throat> For 20 years, she tries to change him. She tries and tries and tries, and finally she gives up. He's a stubborn ox. He's never going to change. And then for some reason, suddenly he's so much nicer, so much more pleasant to be with. He wants to spend time with me, and he's a nice guy. And, and I don't know why, but suddenly the marriage is much better. So, <clears throat> um, ladies, do me a personal favor. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. Ladies, I'm not blaming you. I'm going to blame the guys in a minute also. Gentlemen, you're not off the hook. You're not off the hook at all. You have a responsibility. You know what that responsibility is? Let's start with the following. Please raise your hand if you'd like to be happy. Oh, yeah? Really? Okay, so let me share with you the rule. A happy wife is a happy life. If you let your wife know that she's cherished, that she's loved, that she's number one in your life, you will have a happy wife and a happy life. If your wife does not get that message again and again and again, that she's cherished, that she's number one, that she's loved, you will have an unhappy wife and an unhappy life. What does that mean in plain English? Gentlemen, it is your responsibility to romance your wife. You plan the date. Ladies, you take care of the child care. 
and gentlemen, it's your job to plan the date. It's your job to be the romantic driving force in the marriage. But why? Because men and women have different needs. We're not going to discuss men's needs too much tonight, but I'll share with you one of the great secrets to a woman's health, happiness, and ultimately life satisfaction. If a woman feels that she's loved, if she feels that her husband appreciates her, if she feels cherished, she will be happy. By the way, the Stiplagone writes in a letter, if a woman feels that her husband doesn't love her, it's close to pikuach nefesh. It destroys her. It destroys her sense of self, destroys her image. Gentlemen, most guys are happily married. By the way, I cannot tell you how many times I have a couple come to me, and I'll say to the guy, how's your marriage? Good, Baruch Hashem. I'll say to the wife, how's your marriage? It's horrible, terrible. Wait, you guys are married, like, to each other? 66% of divorces are instigated by women. Well, why? Because women are caregivers and nurturers. They crave the relationship. They need the relationship. Would you like to try a little experiment? Ask, here's the following question. When does a woman start thinking about her marriage? When does a woman start thinking about her marriage? Anyone know? So it's my firm belief that the average girl, by the time she's about 13 years of age, has it all planned out. What kind of guy she's going to marry, what the wedding's going to look like, like the colors, everything. By the time a girl's 13, she has a very good grip on what her marriage is going to look like. When does the average guy start thinking about his marriage? Five years after the wedding. (laughs) But why? I'll tell you why. And because women crave that relationship. By the way, you want to try a little sociological experiment? Ask a young girl, a six-year-old girl, to name her best friend. She'll tell you her best friend, and that best friend dares tell her secret to somebody else. That's ice that best friend, and there's going to be another best friend. Girls have friendships. They monitor their friendships. They work on their friendships. Friendships are very important. I remember I was, I was 20 years old. I was learning in, in Rochester, Yeshiva. My Harris, Rashiva now here. Was a co Shiva there, and at some point I said, Rebbe, I, I don't have a best friend in Yeshiva. You know, I have buddies, we play ball together, we learn together, but I don't have a best friend. Rebbe Harris looked at me and said, Who does? Who has a best friend? Meaning, guys have friendships, guys have buddies, they have people they hang out with, they talk to. By the way, you want to know an interesting statistic? Ask a woman to name her best friend, she'll tell you right away. Ask a woman, When did you last speak to your best friend? either today or an hour ago or two hours ago, right? <clears throat> Ask a guy, do you have a best friend? First of all, 80% of guys name their wife as a best friend. Isn't that nice to know? That's true. But <clears throat> other than your wife, name your best friend. Most guys can name a best friend. When did you last speak to him? About five years ago. <laughs> what? Yeah. Yeah, I have a very good friend. I learned for five years. Rabbi Leiter was a buddy of mine for five years. We learned Bechavrusa. And I could go five years and not talk to him. And I'll call him up and say, hey, what's up? And we'll talk. And then it'll be another five years. But why? I don't know why. Women crave relationships. They need the relationship. They nurture the relationship. And when a man and a woman get married, you have to discover the inner world of your spouse. Your wife craves the relationship. Your wife needs to know that she's cherished. If you would like to be happy, you have to let your wife know that she's cherished, that she's number one. And that means you have to send the love notes and the gifts and the cards, and you have to do everything else. Now, am I telling you it's all the guy's fault? 
Well, there are some things that women do that make it difficult for the husband to like them, let alone love them. And that first thing is, ladies, with all due respect, don't change your husband. Don't do it. All it does is annoy him. All it does is makes it difficult. All it does is make it very difficult to be happily married. I think this Chazal shares with us a tremendous yesod. The reason why the Malachim said to Avram, was because they had the near-perfect marriage. But love is the glue of a marriage, and there was more that could be added. You gave us food to eat. They wanted to give back. They asked that question so that Avram would have a greater appreciation. Why did Hashem change? Why did Hashem lie? Because Hashem didn't want the slightest scratch. Had Avram heard that Sarah said he's old, he wouldn't have gone to pieces, but it slightly would have marred things, and therefore Avram Avinu didn't hear that Hashem changed it number one the marriage is based on love number two Shalom Bayes is holy the first of the ten really dumb mistakes is mistaking infatuation for love infatuation is natural it's instinctive it just happens but it passes it disappears it's gone in six months it's gone in a year love requires a tremendous amount of work a tremendous amount of dedication and the second mistake that very smart couples make is they stop working on the love in the marriage if you want to be happily married you have to work on the love you have to work on the bond you have to work on the connection and the third really dumb mistake that very smart couples make is they say the words, I could have done better. Listen, I did all right, but I could have done better. I could have married someone richer or smarter or more learned or frumer or whatever it may be, and you are 100% right. You probably could have nabbed somebody with more of a particular quality, but you would not have been happier. This is the person that Hashem determined is right for you, and there are certain jobs that are better left to Hashem. But let's deal with the fourth really dumb mistake that we didn't mention yet. Here's the story. A young man and a young woman are walking down the street. Here's what happens. <clears throat> As they walk down the street, he trips. And she says, they? are you okay? You're right? That's scene one. Scene two, same couple, walking down the street. He trips. And her reaction is, Kolatz, what's wrong with you? Can't even walk? What's the difference between scene one and scene two? Or so scene one is when they're chasen and kala. Scene two is when they're married already three years. And this is the fourth of the ten really dumb mistakes that very smart couples make. Not working on the respect in the marriage. Love is vital. Love is a glue. But if there isn't respect in the marriage, you see, you may love me, but if you're not treating me with respect, it's very difficult for me to love you back. John Gottman, let's go back to his study. He has a very, very interesting study. When he brings the couple into his lab and he measures everything, he then will ask the husband to step aside and brings in a stranger, a strange woman, I'm sorry, a strange man, to talk to the woman. And then he'll ask the husband to come back, ask his wife to leave, and he brings in a strange woman. And what he's looking for is how do couples deal with each other versus how they talk to strangers. And this is what he says. Whether a couple are married, newly married, or married for many years, invariably, people are more polite to strangers than they are to their spouse. If they're going to argue, they'll argue far less with a stranger than they will with their spouse. And if they do argue, they're far more polite with a stranger and far more ready to accept their opinion than they are with their own spouse. And he says this is true of couples who are newly married or married for decades. It seems to be a natural sort of thing. We let our hair down and we stop working on the respect. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm a big fan of breaking the smartphone. I'm a big fan of dropping in the toilet. But... There is one tool on that smartphone that is very, very helpful for Sean Bias. It's the tape recorder. 
one time during a conversation with your spouse, put the tape recorder on and listen to the way that you guys speak to each other. There are times when my hair wants to stand on end. Moshe, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. <clears throat> Shira, that's dumb. That's utterly stupid. How can you say something so doom, dumb? I hear couples speak to each other in ways that it makes my hair stand on end. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen, you have to work on the respect. You have to work on the love. You have to work on the bond. But you also have to work on the respect. And you have to recognize that that which bothers your spouse is legitimate even if it doesn't bother you. Well, he's just carrying on. If it bothers him, that means it bothers him. If it bothers her, that means it bothers her. And I think this is the fourth of the ten really dumb mistakes, not working on the respect, not understanding what their spouse needs. These mistakes are so common and so invariable, but the so to a successful marriage is that bond of love, that connection. Ultimately, that's what makes marriage succeed. You have to learn to live together, but you have to work on the bond, on the connection. And I'd like to close with one last story. My Rebbe, the Rishiv Zetzal, I learned in Yeshiva Chalitz Chaim, Rabbi Leibowitz. The Rishiv was older than the Rebetzin, and everyone knew what was going to happen. <coughs> the Rishiv would pass away before the Rebetzin, <coughs> but that's not quite what happened. The Rebetzin took ill, and very shortly thereafter, she passed away. <coughs> and the Rishiv got up to say a eulogy, a hesped for his wife. Now, we as Talmidim were in the Rashiva's house, and I cannot tell you the respect and regard they had for each other, the incredible respect that the Rebbitzin had for the Rashiva and the Rashiva had for the Rebbitzin. In any case, Rashiva got up to say a husband, and he said as follows, everything we did, we did together. We built the yeshiva together. We went there at Sral together. I didn't have to worry about anything. She worried about my health more than I did. She worried about my food more than I did. Everything we did, we did together. He must have said that expression 12, maybe 14 times. And then he said these words. I said a hesped. I said a eulogy for my father. I said a hesped for my mother. I cannot say a hesped for my wife. If I say a hesped for my wife, it's like I'm saying a hesped for myself. I cannot do it. And he sat down. And with those words, he defined a marriage. One unit, bonded, connected. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of commitment. It takes a lot of love. It takes a lot of learning to live together. That's the ultimate goal. When you work on it, when you do it, then you succeed and Hashem helps. Now, before I end, and I'm going to ask you now, if anyone wants to write questions on the back of the card, you can write them and someone will bring them forward. But before we do that, I want to make an announcement that I'm very excited to make. First of all, if you'd like, you can buy copies of the book, The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes in the Back of the Room. They're on sale, and uh, you can pay on the... There's a sign on the bottom how to pay for it. You're more than welcome. But there's an announcement that I'd like to make that I'm very excited about. And I have a feeling that when you see this, you're going to say, oh my goodness, that is really cool. Okay, here's the story. I wrote a book. The book is called The Ten Really Dumb Mistakes That Very Smart Couples Make. The book is good. No, the book is great. People have to, uh, countless numbers of people, became a bestseller, 10, 12,000, 15,000 copies. Of, people from all walks of life are telling me the book is great, it's great, it's great, it's great. Okay, would you like to know what frustration is? I cannot tell you how many guys said to me, Rabbi Schaefer, the book is great. I say, okay, good. What page are you up to? I'm up to page 50. How long have you had the book? Three months. Oh, here's a better one. Rabbi Shiva, the book is great. Oh, what page are you up to? I'm up to page 10. Now, there's a table of contents. There are scummers. And <laughs> page 10, page 10. So I realize that much of the world are illiterate. 
either ADHD out the window or totally completely illiterate. So I gave up. I realized people don't read. So I said, I'm going to create a video book. What's a video book? I took the essence of the book and I made 51 short videos, three-minute videos. They're animated. They're incredibly, you'll see them when you see the animations. I, I use a team in Pakistan. They are so real. You will not believe, you think they made in Borough Park. I mean, the animations are perfect. They're real. They're good. So I took, I made 51 short videos, 31, and I put it into a video book. Now, what's a video book? This is what it is. It, um, it's a book. And when you open it up, it plays. This is a tale of Shana and Bensi Cohen. But what? Shana and Bensi are your all-American couple, both bright, talented, and successful. Both brought up in good homes, both confident and goal-oriented, and both a bit surprised with what marriage has brought them. Here's Shana's version. Dating Bensi was you guys are too far away, you can't see this. Energy, always moving. It gave me a sense of excitement and adventure. But after three years of marriage, his ADHD is driving me crazy. Anyway, it's three-minute videos, animated, powerful, 51 of them. It's three and a half hours of content, the essence of the book, and it's available in a video book. You might not have ever seen this before. Has anyone ever seen a video book before? Yes. You have not seen it. Not true. Who saw it? No, you saw maybe a message, you saw an advertisement. You've not seen it. How do I know you didn't see it? Because I just spoke to a lawyer today about trademarking it, patenting it. It's not, it's not, no one ever did, it's not done. No one has done it. You saw it? Well, they're going to have to pay me because I'm going to have to patent. (laughs) I feel bad for them. I have a patent lawyer, a guy who works with, helps me with the shows a lot, and he told, "Yeah, it's a great idea. We're gonna." Right, anyway, even if you saw it, did you see this? Is come on, is this cool? Come on, come on, it is. Come on. No, we, that one we did. Already. We did that one already. Let's do the other one. How to fight? Watch this one. How to fight? Is this the next one? Let's discuss how to fight. How to fight? How to fight? First rule in how to fight is. Don't do it. Don't do it. In marriage, there's nothing that's worth fighting about. There'll be different wants and needs. There'll be different opinions. And you'll have to make many decisions and many compromises. But the rule in marriage is nothing is worth fighting over. Watch this animation. Fighting Come is a lose-lose situation. If you lose, you lose. And if you win, you This guy was drawn by a Pakistani. Do you see, any, you see his payas? By the way, how do I know I have my team? This is not a joke. I, I, I was interviewing teams for, to do the, uh, the uh, animations. So I had a Zoom call with the team, and the head lead, the lead uh, animator, was a Muslim woman, neck up to here, um, sleeves down to the wrist. I said, just dress the women like you do in the hame. Just like at home. Just dress, and it's perfect. Every one of the women have super sneers. The guys have pay. It's great. Anyway, anyway, you, I would like to tell you that the copies are here, but they're not. You can go on the schmooze.com. On the schmooze.com, you could order them. The copies are coming Friday. The DHL is delivering Friday. You could order them on the schmooze.com, and they'll be shipped out. If you would like it, they're available for thirty nine ninety five. It has the essence of the book, and it's really, I'm telling you guys, this is... This is big stuff. This is very, to me, it was very exciting. I couldn't believe how cool it was when it came out. Um, it's got five chapters, 51 things. You can see there are two more in the back. You can look at it. And now, if anyone has questions, please feel free to write them down. Anyone has questions? Do we write them? We're sending, bring them up. Ravi's collecting. Anyone write questions? No one has questions. <laughs> yeah, feel free to write them. We'll have one of the women volunteer to bring them up. But, ladies, <clears throat> the question is, how can I change my husband? Don't write it. 
don't do it. Don't please don't do it. Please, please, please don't do it. I mean, you know, we'll, you got anyone raise? No one write. No one write down. We could bring them up. Let's. We'll take a minute. <clears throat> oh, it's the illiterate generation. I forgot we don't write either. Oh. Uh, anyone want to raise a hand and ask a question? You can. If not, we'll just take it. Uh, if anyone's brave, you can. If not, we'll take the questions. Rob, does anyone have any written questions? They're writing. They're writing away. Question. Yes, sir. What if whenever the, the husband and wife wants to go out, the husband wants to go to one place and the woman wants to go to another place and they never agree to where they want to go? Okay. What does a wise husband do? <laughs> What's your responsibility? Happy wife. Happy wife. Romance your wife. Ask her what she wants to do and do it. Make her happy, please. You'll do so. You should plan the date. Right. Plan the date, but plan it the way she wants, not the way. Let's go to the ball game. We'll go we'll play basketball. Yeah, that's great. That's good. Yeah. We'll go skiing tonight. Yeah, you know. Um, bungee cord jumping off the Eiffel Tower. No, 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 no. No. You plan the date, but plan what she wants to do. And if you're not sure, you could ask her. You can ask her. But, um, all right. If anyone wants to ask a question by raising a hand, you can. If not, we're going to bring up Robbie. Anyone wrote questions? Ladies, someone? Did anyone? Uh, no, usually people have questions. Was every, everything was so clear. Wow, that's great. Here's a question. Okay. Um, okay. How do you know which person Hashem chose for you? Okay, excellent question. So there are two things. There's the paper test and the Bashar test. The paper test is before you meet, hopefully. You see on paper, are you matched up? Are you looking to bring up a home in a similar way and bring up children in the same sort of way? Do you have the same outlook in life? On paper, are you guys matched up? That's also the point where you're looking for any skeletons in the closet, maybe any mental illness or anything that you know that you're not going to see on the date. Once you take the paper test, then you take the Bashar test. What is the Bashar test? The Bashar test is the most intuitive, natural, instinctive process. You go out and you see. What you're looking for is it just feels natural. It just feels comfortable. My Rebbe, the Shiva Zetzal, would always ask these questions after the date. Do you enjoy the date? Do you look forward to, a comp- to going out again? <clears throat> Did you, was it pleasant? Did you enjoy? It's sort of a natural sort of sense. You're not looking for rockets on the 4th of July. You're not looking for this wild infatuation. You're looking to see if there's just a natural sort of comfort. If it passes the paper test and then the Bashar test, and then you do what you're supposed to do. You close your eyes and you say these words. How do I know? Ladies and gentlemen, I am married, Baruch Hashem, 35 years. It is a nays gole that I got married. Every date was reviewed by two Rosh Kolos and two Rosh Shivas. Listen, I had never been married before, and I wanted to do this one time, and I was close to two Rosh Kolos and two Rosh Shivas, and every date I reviewed. It's a Kiddush Nora that we got up to date nine. After date nine, everyone sort of nodded, and I was about to propose, and I said to myself these words, How do I know? Well, listen, she passed the paper test here. I, I look forward to a date. I look forward to being with her. Company's great. I, the conversation sort of flow. But how do I know? And you know what the answer is? Of course I don't know. There are some jobs better left to Hashem. I did my part. The paper test, the Bashar test, and it seems to be that this is the right one. How do I know who the right one is? By the way, Revolbi writes in the name of the Chazanish. When you have that sort of sense that it just feels right, that's the Baskol. You remember the Gemara says that there's a baskol, a heavenly voice that comes out 40 days before a person's born, the daughter of so-and-so, so-and-so. And Revolbi asked, what good is the baskol if I don't hear it? 
heavenly voice. If I saw Eliyahu Novi, it'd be great. If I saw a neon light, it'd be great. But I don't hear the Bosco. And Revolvi says in Neiman Chazan Ish that when you have that sense that this is the right one, that's the Bosco. That's Hashem speaking to you, telling you, take that plunge. How do I know? You don't know, but this is the right one. Take the step forward. Okay, any other questions, thoughts, observations? Okay, we have questions. Here we go. How do I change my husband? <laughs> no, it's not what it says. It's not what it says. <laughs> okay. But I love this first one. How do you accept your own and your spouse's imperfections, like the ones that really bug you? How can you be less critical? How can you start making amends? Okay, ladies and gentlemen, would you like one of the most important Musr exercises I know of, and one of the best exercises for a successful marriage? Here it is. You go over to a mirror. You look at the face staring back at you at the mirror. And you say to yourself the following, I am a difficult person to live with. I, I am a difficult person to live with. I am a difficult person. You mean my, my husband, my wife? No, you. I am a difficult person to live with. Now, how do I know that you're a difficult person to live with? Because, ladies and gentlemen, Hashem created us imperfect, and gave us a job to perfect ourselves. If you're perfect, then you've done your job on this earth, and it's time for you to leave. Let's hope you're still not perfect. And that means you're either too late or too on time, too uptight or too timid or too bold, or too loud or too quiet, whatever. We all have shtick. And when you recognize that every human being is difficult to live with, and you stare in the mirror and you say, I am a difficult person to live with, it becomes a whole lot easier for you to live with that difficult person called your spouse. Because guess what? Your spouse has to live with you. Oh, I never thought about it that way. Oh, you hear what I'm saying? I'm telling you, that's a big, big episode. I am a difficult person to live with. Me? No, yeah. I am a difficult person to live with. Okay. If we should, if we shouldn't change, how do we deal with the differences? Okay, now we got that good. We should, if we shouldn't change our spouse, how do we deal with the differences? Okay, now, ladies and gentlemen, number one, two human beings are going to be different. That's a given. Now, if you're dealing with things that are dangerous, or you're dealing with things that are rude and obnoxious, that's inexcusable. But other than that, other than things that are really dangerous, or other than things that are really hurtful, nasty, or things like that, we all have stuff. That means they're coming late, or they're coming on time. So here's the equation. The husband's job it is to pick up the socks. The wife's job it is to ignore the socks. Both of them have a part to to do. He has to work on being neater. She has to work on being more not noticing. And you'll find that in every single marriage there's always going to be stuff. Your job as a spouse who's doing something is to be less annoying, less bothersome, whatever your spouse doesn't like and you work on it your spouse's job is to ignore and embrace you as you are if you both work on both sides of that equation hopefully you reach a much better position alright what is Rabbi's bank account what is the Rabbi's two separate bank accounts oh what is Rabbi's opinion about two separate bank accounts That's a lot better. <laughs> okay. What is... <laughs> okay. I happen to hate the idea. I hate the idea. You guys are married. You guys are one unit. 
you guys should have one bank account. Now, there has to be controls, and it has to be things and understanding, but at the end of the day, you guys are a unit. And invariably, it's going to be very difficult. You have to understand, no matter who and what you are, each of you are going to want to spend money on different things and different amounts. One of you is going to be a spender, the other one's not going to be a spender. But even if you're both <coughs> spenders, each going to want to spend money on different things. And even if you're both very miserly, you're each going to admit <coughs> different things to be miserly about. So, at the end of the day, you have to work this out like everything else. <coughs> okay, so basically, the, the gist of the question is, that my wife doesn't want to get a babysitter. Um, the baby's very attached to her, and the baby's going to cry. Ladies and gentlemen, I got to explain to you. It is imperative. It is vital. It is absolutely vital that you spend time as a couple. Now, if you really find the baby is that sensitive. Can you put the baby to sleep? Assuming that you don't have that many kids around, sometimes for a short while you could do dates inside. If, meaning if the other kids are really sleeping and you have little kids or you only have one child, then for short periods of time you could do indoor dating. Meaning you stay home and you play whatever, board games or whatever. It's very un... I normally don't recommend it because what happens is um, it's very hard. The first thing you have to do is shut off the phone. Anyone know what that switch on the bottom of the phone that shuts it off. Anyone know where that is? A lot of people can't find it. So the first problem is that if you stay home... Oh, by the way, ladies and gentlemen, when you go on this weekly date, what happens with that device that's in your pocket? Should be off. Should be what? Can, can it, is there an off switch on it? Yeah, really? Okay, it better be off. I once had a couple I was dealing with who were really having a tremendous amount of issues. And I begged them to go out. I begged them to go out. And finally, they agreed. And I asked the guy afterwards. But I made a tonight couple. You cannot bring a smartphone. No smartphones on a date. If you got to bring, the babysitter has to contact you. You bring a dumb phone and let them text you. But no smartphones on a date. Okay, anyway. So after the date, I asked the husband how to go. Here's what he said. It was pretty lousy. I said, why? She was looking at a Blackberry all night. Blackberry? They don't make those things anymore. She, I know. She had an old Blackberry, and somehow she was able to connect it, and she was texting her friends all night on the Blackberry. So, ladies and gentlemen, let me make it very clear. If I said the greatest competitor for romance is your children, the second greatest competitor is that thing in your pocket that's in your hand often that guys are looking at right now who shouldn't be... Break it, shut it, just drop it in the toilet. Do something, but don't take it on a date. And by the way, my wife has a line. You know, in Dodge, they used to leave. When you went into the saloon, you couldn't bring your gun. You had to leave because there were too many bar fights, you know, with guns. So my wife says, you leave the phone. When you come home, you leave the phone in the glove compartment of your car. <laughs> I get the joke. She's serious. And we had a long, long-standing rule in our house like that. But in my house, we don't pick up phones. We don't look at phones during dinner. <clears throat> on a date, we don't... Because you got to respect your spouse. And if you're just answering a text or just looking at social media or just looking at WhatsApp on a date with your spouse, you're insulting your spouse. Break it. Shut it. If you can't control it, at least put it on off. But don't be insulting to your spouse on a date. Okay. Um, Oh, here's the question. I love it. Are you ready? <clears throat> gentlemen, this one's for you, gentlemen. What if you want to change them for the better, to develop better traits or habits? Yes. What do you want to bet it was written by a woman? Who wants to take a bet? But you know why? 
Women are caregivers. They're nurturers. They can't help but want to help their husband. So ladies, let me make it clear. If you want to help your husband, don't do it. All you're going to do is aggravate him. All you're going to do is treat him with disrespect. He's not going to change and it's going to make... But, but who's going to teach him to pick up his socks? He may never learn. But you have a choice to make. You either have a happy marriage to a guy with a flaw or have an unhappy marriage to a guy with a flaw. But you're not going to change him. But it's an important trait. And who's going to teach him? His mother didn't teach him, so obviously I have to. You want to be his mother? He's going to treat... All right, don't do it, please. So the answer is, what if you want to change him for the better? Don't do it. Okay. Um, Here's one. Uh, What? <laughs> the couple has a difference of opinion. One has a logical outlook, the other has an emotional outlook on the matter. How does compromise work in this scenario, and who should be more compromising? <laughs> get the joke? Let me read it again if anyone didn't get the joke. The couple has a difference of opinion. One has a logical outlook, the other has an emotional outlook on the matter. How does compromise work in this scenario? Okay, so here's the simple truth of things. Who's right in your marriage? Who's right? Who's right? Both are right. The woman's right. The man's right. Okay. The worst question that you could ever ask in marriage is who's right? Who's right is a good question to ask in a court of law, maybe a divorce court, but don't ever ask it in a marriage. You have competing needs, competing wants, and at the end of the day, there are only so much time, so much resources, and you're going to have to make decisions. But if you are going to be able to climb it, you see, I don't want to give away, this is part one, there's part two of the lecture, part three, part two is in Rosalind, part three is in Brooklyn, I don't want to give it all away, because then I have nothing to talk about the next two times. But your ability to climb into the emotional world of your spouse, your ability to recognize that your spouse's needs are valid, even if I don't need them, even if I don't view things that way, my spouse has absolutely every right to experience things as he or she does, and they're valid. That is the key to successful marriage. It doesn't matter if it's emotional, doesn't matter if it's logical, my spouse is 100% an equal partner in this marriage, and once I recognize that, and I'm able to recognize the validity of my spouse's needs, desires, or wants, you're able to find a way. You see, two reasonable people can find a compromise. It's when I become unreasonable, when I say my house is, my, my, my spouse is so emotional, I, I can't deal with emotionality. My my spouse is so logical. I can't deal with emo- just logic. <clears throat> if you're able to climb into the world of your spouse, if you're able to recognize that their opinion, their thoughts are absolutely valid, then you're able to find an easy compromise and you're able to find an easy solution. Okay. Can you tell him how you feel about his socks? For example, I saw your socks today and I picked it up. Can you help picking up your... Can you help, please, picking up your socks? Okay, um, so what's the answer to that? I give you one time. Yes, you're allowed one time. One time you're allowed to express the fact that you wish things would be different. I'll give you twice. Twice you're allowed to. Three t- for the rest of your life. I once had a woman who said to me, I, I told him yesterday, I told him again, I told him again. So, she, so I said, well, after you told him, let's say like, you know, I don't know, 8,000 times, why do you keep telling him? She said, well, simply, obviously he didn't get it yet. 
<laughs> so let me be very clear. Assuming your husband has an IQ of 80 and above, if you told him once, twice, three times, he gets it. So why doesn't he just do it? And the answer is because he has many strengths and he has weaknesses just like you. And if he would start demanding from you, uh, ladies, anybody here over 40? No one's over 40. All right. I'll give you an example. Ladies, when you need to change your husband, when you absolutely must completely, totally change your husband, and you tried the, I'm a difficult person to live with, and it didn't work, and you tried everything else, I have one last muscle exercise. You ready? Here we go. Here we go. You look in the mirror and you say to yourself, am I at my ideal weight? Am I at my ideal weight? I know few women, very few women, in fact, I don't know any women over the age of 18 who are at their ideal weight. So here's the question. Why don't you lose weight? Why aren't you 118 pounds? Why aren't you the ideal weight that you want to be? And the answer is because it's very difficult. Aha. The same way it's very difficult for you to lose weight. The same way it's very difficult for you to work on your stuff. It's very difficult for your spouse. But if he loved me, he would. Wrong. Ladies and gentlemen, I love davening. I work on davening. And I really, really focus on davening. And I, I get into davening. And I come late, pretty often. And I beat myself up. And I beat myself up. And as I come in, I say, Tzachil Hashem. And why am I doing it? And I still come late. And do you know why? I don't know why. My father was born in Berlin, but I was born in Queens. What can I tell you? I, I don't know. It's, it's a, I, don't tell me it's not important. It's very important. And I beat myself. By the way, my wife... One time, 35 years, one time she said, you know, maybe close the Gemara now and you'll be on time to dominate. She never said it again. You know why? Because again, Baruch Hashem, have a great marriage, but she got one of those looks like, and that was the last time she ever said it to me. But why? I'm only doing it for your good. I only want you to be on time. And you said how much you want to be on time to dominate. And if you close the Gemara, you think, yeah, right. Okay, anyway, don't do it. Um, yeah, so if you want to tell them about the socks, don't do it. Okay. Um, <clears throat> By the way, are you supposed to change your spouse? You sure? Did I make that clear? I can't wait to read the emails. I can't wait. I'm going to get home tonight. I'm going to read. <clears throat> All right. Oh, here's a good one. How do you teach your kids to pick up their socks? If they see dad not doing it, it becomes habitual for the kids to take after the parents. So if we sit quiet through it, how do we explain it's not okay to do certain things to the kids? Okay. <clears throat> Ladies and gentlemen. Here we go. One second, I gotta hold the mic. Here we go. Okay. Here's a question I love to deal with. I get it all the time. My husband or my wife, either one, is too lenient with the children and my spouse is ruining the kids. But if I talk to them about it, it ruins the shalom bias. Or my husband or my wife is too strict with the kids. But if I talk to them about it, it ruins the shalom bias. Do I sacrifice my children or do I sacrifice my marriage? You have the question? Do I sacrifice my children or do I sacrifice the marriage? Okay, here we go. It was quite a number of years ago. One of our, one of our daughters was having a little trouble in school. She was, this is, my daughter's married with four kids herself now. Anyway, the, the principal asked us to see Dr. Underberg. We were in Rochester. Dr. Underberg had been the head of psychology in the University of Rochester. She was already retired, and she was teaching parents parenting skills. So we went to her, and after about two weeks, she taught us a technique, how to deal with the kid, etc. Everything was good. 
<clears throat> but what I discovered at that session was that this Dr. Underberg was brilliant. She was a student of Chaim Ganat, <clears throat> and she was like, the wisdom that she had and the understanding of the child, I sat there taking notes, notes, notes. We went back week after week. We went for years. My wife and I went every week for years. We went to her. I begged this woman to write a book. I said, I'll write it together with you. In the end, she died before she got a chance to write it. <clears throat> but here was one very important lesson that I learned. I sat there, I was already a Rebbe, I was already in my 40s, and I sat there for two years, every single week, jaw open, learning about the nature of a child. And you know one of the great discoveries I made was? Why do you parent your child the way you do? Most of us parent our child the way we do, because that's our nature. If you're by nature very, very structured, that's how you're going to parent your child. If by nature you're very, very relaxed and chilled, that's how you're going to parent your child. And the first question I ask the spouse who's troubled by my spouse who's ruining the child, how do you know you're right? I've seen it so many times that a child is brought up in what you think is the wrong way and it's very, very important for the child and the child flourishes. First of all, most likely your child may not have the nature that you have and using your system on your child may be the opposite. Maybe your child is more like your spouse and your spouse has the right attitude. So number one, how do you know you're right? But number two, the single best investment you can make in your children being wholesome and happy is when you as a couple are united. It is far more damaging to your children if your shalom bias starts falling apart than any discipline system, easy or hard, lenient or rigid. I guarantee you'll do far more damage to your children if you wreck your marriage than if you use the wrong discipline system. So the bottom line is, I think you leave it, and if your kids are going to learn the wrong lesson, you tell Tell your children the following. Daddy drives a car. You don't drive a car. But parents parents are parents. Adults are adults. These are the rules in the house. You have to pick up your socks. But daddy doesn't. Excuse me. That's not your concern. There are certain boundaries. Children don't have a right to criticize parents. Children don't have a right to say, but daddy does. They're adults. They're children. And don't do it. Okay. Um, does that work? It does. Ay, 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 ay. What? What? Are, more questions? More questions? We can start bringing up more questions. <coughs> hmm. <coughs> Seems like everyone here has a sock problem. Maybe it's normal. Oh. Maybe every human being has flaws. And maybe every human being is difficult to live with. And maybe I, too, am a human being. Oh. Ladies and gentlemen, if you like a copy of the book, you can get it in the back. If you like a video book, please go to the schmooze.com. T-H-E-S-H-M-U-Z.com. You'll see on the top, you'll see a place to order the video book. We'll have them in Friday. You can get your first copy of the first hundred. I'll come in Friday. By the way, if you want to get it, get it now because once the first hundred go, i got to order the rest from China. I thank you all for coming. Next week, Wednesday night, it's going to be in Roslyn or on tour anytime. The week after is going to be in Brooklyn. And again, on tour anytime. Thank you. Much You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.